Greetings, friends, and a warm welcome back to Intersections, where our intrigue and aspiration is to find ways to dissolve boundaries that we otherwise in society, in science, in humanity have formed at times, perhaps, you know, out of the convenience of wanting to understand the mysteries of the world in more kind of bite-sized ways. But on the other hand, in doing so, sometimes we lose the possibilities of seeing things with a bigger picture in mind. Today, my intent is to allow us to dissolve one of these very critical boundaries between the brain and the heart. We are living in an age, in a golden age of brain science, and neuroscience is um, bringing us really powerful discoveries and insights about the possibilities in human nature. We are starting to tap into those in education and also in uh, leadership. Uh, and at the same time, there is this other part of who we are, you know, the heart that uh, sometimes gets uh, short shrift. It doesn't get as much of a active treatment. And we have with us someone today who has done really profound work, both in his research and his practice, but also in just the way he's lived his life to bring these two worlds together, the brain and the heart. And so I'm just so delighted to have this opportunity for us to take a very scientific look and yet a very experiential look at what happens when you bring the brain and the heart together. So let me introduce our guest and then bring him onto the conversation as well. Uh, we are talking here about Dr. James Doddy. Uh, he is a pioneering researcher on the topics of compassion and altruism. He is a leading neurosurgeon and a professor at Stanford, um, where he's been a clinical professor of neurosurgery at the School of Medicine. He's been part of the faculty for the last 24 years. He's also founded at Stanford the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, uh, where the intent and mission of this organization is to understand more clearly the neural correlates of compassion and the value proposition of, you know, when you be compassionate, like, what does it do in, in terms of your health, your wellness and longevity? He advises a number of leading corporations on the power of compassion, a topic that is gaining a lot of interest today in the world of business as well, including Google and Apple and Microsoft and beyond. Um, he's friends and associates with um, some of the most uh, influential and compassionate thinkers of our times today and folks who are very storied and rich in their spiritual life, uh, such as um, you know, Pope Francis and Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Amma and Shishi Ravi Shankar. He, um, he's the, you can see I'm going fast because there's just so much of richness to cover in a short bit and I really want to get him here with us. He is the author of an international uh, bestseller, a New York Times bestseller, Into the Magic Shop. We're going to talk much about some of his stories from that book. It's been translated into 30 plus languages. It's also inspired a music album uh, you know, Love Yourself by the K-pop sensation BTS and a Hollywood movie that is being scheduled to release in 2023 with actor John Hamm. Um, he is also going to be setting up the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where his focus is going to be on helping people better understand compassion and explore topics like, you know, consciousness and psychology and faith and spirituality. And I just want to start us off with the, this beautiful quote from him, you know, where he says, uh, we are at the beginning of an age of compassion. People are yearning for an understanding of their place in the world and a way to be content and happy. And they are looking for a method of transformation. And then he talks about this character, Ruth, in his life, which we will ask him about. Ruth taught me a method that worked for me. And maybe it was her insight and skill that allowed it to manifest as it did. Right now, it is a ripple in human, human consciousness fueled by compassion, but it's a ripple that has the potential to become a tsunami. And on that note, let me invite into our midst, Dr. James Doddy. 
Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, thank you for that uh, very generous uh, uh, introduction. I appreciate that. Well, I want to thank you for living the life that you've been living, because I, I tell you, it's one thing to like, you know, study this in philosophy or uh, in, in theory, but it's another thing when we can interact with, uh, with, with those who've been leaving a really a luminous sort of footprints over the sands of time. And and just in the way you've lived your life and in what you're doing, uh, you're just such an outshining, outstanding example for all of us. So, so I'm great, grateful for what you've been doing. I want to start, if we can, at a really early stage of your life journey. Um, you, you talk about this in the book. You had an interest in magic. Uh, yes. And uh, maybe a little even more backstory is uh, growing up as a child, I uh, was in a situation where it was extremely challenging. My father was an alcoholic. My mother had had a stroke when I was young and was partially paralyzed. She had a seizure disorder. Unfortunately, she became chronically depressed, attempted suicide. We were on a public assistance essentially my entire childhood. Uh, we were evicted from different uh, residences. So of course, this is not an ideal situation for anyone to uh, have to grow up in. That being said, at the end of the day, I always felt my patients or my parents loved me, but it was not obviously expressed in a way that would be most beneficial, I would tell you. But at the age of 12, what happened was I was in the situation where I did not uh, believe I had a future. I was angry, hostile. Uh, I was also in despair. I felt a sense of hopelessness. And I actually uh, had become interested in magic. And I would do uh, probably fairly simple tricks, but they amused me and uh, sort of allowed me to separate myself from my home environment. And uh, when things would get challenging at home, uh, what would happen is I would jump on my uh, bicycle and ride as far and as fast away as I could. And there was this actually this orange stingray bike with the banana seats that some of the listeners may be aware of. But anyway, on one of those journeys, I went uh, further than I normally would, and I uh, ended up at a strip mall, and in the strip mall was a magic shop. And uh, so I decided to go in, and I walked in, and at the uh, counter was this woman, probably in her 50s, with uh, gray, uh, black hair, uh, glasses on her nose with a chain, reading a book. And she looked up, and she smiled at me, and it was a radiant smile, one of those smiles that embraces you. And I started asking her some questions about magic, and she informed me she knew absolutely nothing about magic, that this is her son's store. But this ended up uh, with the both of us having a conversation. And when we talk about situations where you can be authentic, it requires the creation of an environment of psychological safety. And Generally speaking, for me, as a 12-year-old, I was very distrustful uh, because of my background. I carried a lot of shame, and I normally would not tell my story, if you will, but she created an environment where I felt very comfortable with her, and the reason was is because she allowed me to maintain my dignity. She didn't look up at me or look down at me and make judgments. She treated me as if I was her equal, and so instead of shying away from telling her the truth about certain things, I was quite open. And at the end of about 20, 30 minutes, she said to me, she said, you know, I really like you, and uh, I think I can teach you something that could really help you. Now, of course, I had no idea what that meant. 
uh, but she was uh, giving me cookies during our conversation. She said, I'm here for another six weeks, and if you show up every day, I think I could teach you something that could really help you. And so I did show up, and this led to her teaching me what is interesting in the sense that at that time, and this was in 1968 or so, the concept of meditation or mind training was certainly in no way universal and was non-existent uh, in the town I lived in. And also, in a larger picture, this idea of being able to change your brain or the idea of neuroplasticity was really not accepted in any way. And so uh, with that introduction, uh, I spent the next six weeks every day with her for an hour and a half or two hours in the back of a magic shop uh, in a small room, and she taught me uh, a variety of practices, which frankly took me from a scared, angry uh, child to understanding that one, I had agency and uh, that I held within me the tools to change my own life. And uh, fundamentally, that interaction led to a market, of course, change in the trajectory of my life. Well, that's just the starting point of what is such a powerful story, and we want to get more into it. Uh, but uh, but thanks for bringing up that background as well, Jim, that... Uh, was fueling a certain, you know, fire in you for wanting, you know, wanting some change, you know, wanting to explore more than what you were getting in that immediate moment, you know, at home. Um, I uh, want to share that we we share a common interest in magic. I, I don't know if it's uh, stayed on with you, you know, s s since then, and especially after you got that gift of, you know, the meditation practice. But I'll tell you this, when I was growing up, sort of like the same age as what you were describing, I was fascinated, fascinated. And I used to read these American comic uh, books and they would be in the back of it advertising about some of the kind of like magic offerings for kids that you could post a mail thing, you know, order and get. But I couldn't because I was in India and, you know, and all of that. And uh, when I came to the United States at the age of 21 to pursue graduate studies, that child in me had still not grown up. So <laughs> I, um, over the years, I've really enjoyed going to magic shops. I still remember this Hollywood magic in Los Angeles and going there and just like being like a kid in a candy store, just picking up, you know, as many of those things as I could. So um, that part of your story really warmed my heart. You know? um, and, and, uh, and, then, and then, of course, the powerful journey you've made in, in meditation. You, you say something in your book about how, you know, there's the relaxing of the body and the taming of the mind, the focusing of the mind, but there was also more to the you know, the methods that Ruth was teaching you beyond just the, you know, that relaxing of the body and focusing of the mind? I think what one has to understand, and I think uh, is uh, actually prevalent among a lot of people, is the reality that many people are stressed and anxious, and a lot of people carry baggage from their childhood, which has impacted them, and oftentimes in a very negative way. And it's been exacerbated by modern society. Previously, uh, people lived in villages, uh, they were born there, they grew up there, they died there, they knew everybody, their neighbors stayed the same, they had family, relatives, and friends who embraced them. And the important thing was that regardless of what happened and regardless of the situation, at the end of the day, you were embraced by your community and accepted for both the good and the bad. And the responsibility of the community in many ways was to help you learn. And as a result, this type of an environment, this uh, environment of connection and deep relationships, 
actually uh, served as the basis uh, for what we now call blue zones in the world. These areas in the world where people generally live well over 100. And the reason is that this idea of community and social connection was extraordinarily powerful. And when you come from a background where you don't have those components, and of course in modern society, people don't live with relatives or their parents, uh, oftentimes because of the nature of uh, their jobs, they move to areas where they don't have support systems. And frankly, they're afraid of being vulnerable. They're afraid of being judged. I mean, they hide themselves behind a projection of how they want people to see them, not how they actually are. As an example, you know, when you walk down the hallway and somebody greets you and says, oh, hey, how are you? 99.9% uh, .9 of people say, oh, I'm fine. Well, the reality is many, many people are not fine, but they don't want to uh, reveal this to people because they believe it could impact on their situation or how they're treated. But getting back to your point, she taught me a type of training. And the, really the first part of it uh, related to what you were mentioning was uh, being relaxing the body. Because what we don't appreciate is when you're stressed and you're anxious, uh, your muscles uh, tighten up. Uh, you're not attentive or present. And why is that? Because, at least in my situation, I never knew what was going to happen next. Uh, whether I would come home and my father would be drunk or had been arrested or my mother was passed out, or in the hospital. And of, this, and of course, this is extraordinarily traumatic. And this fear that you carry in those situations uh, because you don't know what's going to happen makes it very, very difficult to move forward in the sense of uh, learning or performing. And so the first thing she taught me was this idea of relaxing uh, the body, or what's now called a body survey, which, of course, is associated with the mindfulness practice. And so that's how we initially started uh, with uh, this idea of very consciously and with intention relaxing the body, but also in conjunction with a breathing exercise, slowly breathing in and exhaling, and then uh, actually ultimately focusing on a candle. And the nature of those practices uh, allowed me to actually relax and be calm and, of course, when you're relaxed and calm, you're present. And uh, we can get into a little bit of the neurobiology of this a bit later. But what happens is then that your prefrontal cortex, or these parts of the brain that are associated with what we call executive control function, work at their best. When you're in that situation, you're much more thoughtful. You're much more discerning. You're much more creative. And ultimately, you're much more productive. Uh, because you're not anxious, you're not afraid, you're not expecting something unknown to happen, which puts you at risk, and which, of course, then uh, stimulates your fear response uh, or stimulation of your sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. Um, you know, maybe I can start with two topics. One is what I really liked about the story uh, is that Ruth had the confidence and the faith that if you're open to it, even at that very tender age, that this is a discipline you could take on and it could actually start giving tangible results to you. Given that um, I've noticed sometimes that, for instance, my core audience tends to be in the late 20s to in their 40s or 50s. You know, these are MBA students or executives. And sometimes 
you know, when I talk to them about my next intention, which is to take this to uh, youth, you know, to undergraduates and, you know, people in their teens and early 20s, you know, some of them will say, ah, but are they ready for it? You know, are they ready for it? And Ruth somehow intuited or felt that perhaps you were ready for it, you know, even, even at that age. Uh, how old were you then again? What, 12 or so, did you say? Uh, 12, about to be 13. And, uh... Yeah, you know, so that, that, that is incredible. That is incredible. And then um, as you're sharing with us some of the neuroscience uh, and neurobiology, you know, in, in what you just said, you know, it also occurs to me that um, we've, in the 20th century, looked at, you know, human nature as though it's very monolithic, that somebody is good or evil, or somebody's calm or nervous, you know, what have you. Uh, but I think in what you're sharing, there is the awareness we can all have that we actually exist in multiple different states at different points in time. And there is a part of us, which uh, if I hear you right, is the calmest part of who we are, the most thoughtful part of who we are, the part from where our most illuminated, I guess, intentions and, you know, ideas arise. Would, would that be fair? Well, I think that's exactly right. Uh, um, you know, so often we go through our lives not really deeply thinking about our lives. It's as if, unfortunately, we're on a, a treadmill like a rat uh, or uh, in a cage, and you believe you're on the right path. You're not understanding the deeper nature of yourself. You're mentioning my age. You know, it's interesting. I'm sure you've heard uh, the same um, uh, the teacher appears when the student's ready. The other thing is that I think if you create the right environment and you make your presentation or your teachings uh, relevant, then I think uh, almost anyone will respond, almost at any age beyond seven or eight. I don't want you to though, think in any way that I was self-aware at that time or knew what was happening. Frankly, the reality was... Uh, uh, two things. One, I had absolutely nothing else to do. Two, it was a safe environment with somebody who, in some sense, nurtured me. And probably the most important part was she was plying me with uh, Chips Ahoy uh, chocolate chip cookies. Uh -huh. So those those were the motivating factors. It was only as this proceeded along that I understood more and realized uh, the changes that were occurring. Yeah. Very powerful. Um, let's turn to one dimension of that change, which is, um, you know, you were not, you know, at peace with the constraints of your external environment at that time. And while you were doing all this inner diving, she was also giving you a tool through which to help uh, bring about conditions on the outside that would, um, yeah, be, be more supportive and conducive, you know, of the kind of life you, you wanted. And it really is quite striking to see the power of intention in your journey and in the tools she gave you. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, about that? I mean, how did she allow you and help you to almost manifest on the outside intentionally some of your dreams and you know, aspirations? Well, I think we have to go a little bit backward uh, for that. Uh, as I mentioned, she taught me this technique of relaxing the body. She taught me a breathing exercise, which allowed me to be present and focused. And which, of course, are parts of mindfulness. And the reason that practice is successful for many people is because the internal dialogue for many people, when they tell themselves a negative statement, in some ways they turn to that and attach to it and listen to it. 
And that's how mindful, traditional mindfulness works. But the reality is there are two more parts here that in the context of teaching mindfulness, were not explicitly present. And that's what actually she taught me. And the first aspect of that was uh, this concept of self-compassion, which, of course, now if you look at the research of Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, uh, they've done a number of studies on how powerful this is because most of us have an inner dialogue that tells us we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not worthy, we're an imposter. And the very nature of that dialogue going on is, of course, very distracting. And unlike traditional uh, mindfulness practice, where you're taught to just ignore these, uh, because when you attach onto them, it has a negative physiologic effect, what she taught me was actually that you could also change the channel, if you will, from the uh, dialogue you're hearing. And that technique of doing that, at least in this situation, was giving yourself affirmation. I am worthy. Uh, I deserve this. I'm not an imposter. I deserve love. Because a lot of people tell themselves this narrative that they don't deserve this, they don't deserve that. And on the one hand, it can propel people to perform out of trying to show others that uh, they're not an imposter. But there's an immense amount of psychological baggage that comes with that, that negative effect negatively affects your physiology. So when you're able to change the narrative, when you're able to tell yourself you're worthy of love, you're worthy of acceptance, uh, that you're competent, that you're good enough, then that results in a huge positive physiologic effect. You're much more calm. You're much more thoughtful. But it also does something else because when you stop being critical of yourself, it allows you to look at the world through a different lens. Because if you're always hypercritical, it's not just towards yourself. It's towards how you look at others in the world. And you're distrustful. You're not sure what's going to happen. You're wondering what their agenda is. When you're able to bring down this barrier of self-criticism and criticism of others, you see that on some level, everyone is suffering. Now, they may be suffering in a different way. You know, you don't have to grow up in poverty or have... Uh, an alcoholic parent or a disabled parent to be traumatized as a child. You can actually come from a very affluent background, uh, but uh, one that has certain other aspects. I mean, it could be domestic abuse. It could be physical abuse. And as a result, you're not able to, again, be present, be able to perform, and also walk in the world with a different vision of others. These traumas that occur, for many people, they dissociate themselves with them and don't even understand what has happened to them. But as they move into adulthood, uh, they continue to have problems, either potentially with drugs and alcohol, potentially with mental illness, uh, potentially not being able to perform or be the person they want to be. So these are very, very powerful lessons. Now, to get back to your initial question, which I sort of diverted from about intention, once she was able to get through to me that I was worthy and I, it, the voice that was talking to me was not really me. It was an, a created narrative uh, as a result of evolutionary baggage. You know, we are taught to fear things 
And of course, generally those are negative situations. As an example, our DNA has not changed since uh, we were on the savanna in Africa 200,000 years ago. So if a, a, the grass was moving uh, based on prior experience, there was probably an animal lurking there. So this, of course, engaged your sympathetic nervous system and you acted. But it, the reality is negative things stick to you because they put your life at risk. Unfortunately, uh, as a side effect of that, negative commentary about yourself sticks to you much more than positive commentary. And this is why it's interesting. It's so common for a person to not be able to accept a compliment. You know, you say, hey, you're great. You're doing a great job. No, 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 I'm not really that. But in fact, you are that. But it's, again, this negative dialogue that goes on. So once I overcame that, and don't get me wrong, I did not necessarily perfect it, but it was part or the beginning of a journey that I was on. So getting back to manifesting, once you gave me the tools of relaxing my body, of a breathing exercise in conjunction to focusing on a candle, which allowed me to be present and to learn, you have to be present. You can't be distracted all the time. And she taught me to be kind to myself and look at the world through a different lens. The next thing she taught me was the power of manifestation. And what is that? Of course, if we think about athletes, and this is actually a very common thing, you know, they're taught by coaches to visualize the action that they want to do. And whether it's running a race or doing a pole vault or whatever, you go through an exercise of visualizing how you want the situation to unfold. And that is actually very powerful. And again, interestingly enough, this woman had already intuited this. And what she had me do was to write down 10 things that I saw in terms of my life unfolding. And of course, I was 12 years old, and some of them were not necessarily the best things. I mean, I had a friend, as an example, whose father had a Rolex watch, and I admired that, and I put that on my list. In school, I uh, saw a fellow drive by uh, in a Porsche, and I said, I want that. But I also wanted to be a doctor. I also wanted to do other things. And I put all of those on the list, and what she had me do was to actually visualize those events occurring. But to support that, she had me write down those things multiple times a day. I mean, physically write a list, then to read the list silently, then read the list aloud, and then sit and think about every one of those things in a way that actually hopefully would turn to reality. Seeing myself be a doctor in a white coat, walking down the hall of a hospital. And I did that innumerable times every day. And what we don't understand is that our sensory organs process about 6 million uh, bits of information a second or so. But we are only able to process 50 to 100 of them. So what happens is there's an immense amount of data that we ignore. But it is that data that gets in that in some ways decides everything. And so what this technique does is it allows these manifestation wishes to get into your subconscious. And then amazing things happen. Now, I'm not going to call this the law of attraction, which is so common. 
and which uh, unfortunately is so focused on material aspects, as you saw from my own 12-year-old mind. But what it does is it can embed these motivations into your subconscious, and then under the cover of that, which you're not actively necessarily pursuing, certain things happen. As an example, I'm sure you've been in a situation where you're in a, a party, people are talking, and you hear your name across the room. And that's because your name and who you are is deeply embedded, so it, you're always constantly aware of it. And another example is, as a neurosurgeon, I will tell a patient they have a diagnosis, and what they'll do is they'll uh, say, you know, that's amazing. I've never heard of that. Is this common? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'll come back and see me six weeks later and go, it's the most amazing thing. I've run into five people who have the same thing, right? Because you, especially in the situation where they're anxious, they embed this into their subconscious, and then they're attuned to it. And what happens is when you're manifesting, as an example, let's say uh, I, as I was at an event last night where there was a dinner with some quite interesting people, but the point is that it attuned me to hear parts of conversations that could potentially benefit, benefit in manifesting my own dreams, right, which I normally would not pay any attention to. Again, because you've, in some ways, um, your wish salient. And there's a part of our brain that is attuned to that. And then, uh, if, you, if you will, in some ways, acts on its own. I want to I wanna really analyze this a little bit more because it's, it's incredibly powerful and there's almost like a mathematical logic that you're giving for it. Right? So what you're saying is there is a set of uh, practices around meditation, affirmation, visualization that uh, Ruth uh, helped you take on, that those are things that, you know, in sports people already know and they do um, very simple sort of systems that we can build to make it happen. And then um, in doing so, it's not that you gain some magical power to just like change everything in the universe, but you just start becoming more aware of opportunity and what seems to be like luck or just happenstance becomes more intentional in the way you're able to navigate through this uh, unfolding you know, world around you to keep uh, capi you know, capitalizing right on, on every small little breakthrough or opportunity or something. And it just increases the odds. Therefore, I mean, is, is that, is that like a, a fair way of seeing it? No, I think you're exactly right. Uh, again, um, the other aspect is we know that through repetition and intention, this supports or strengthens neural pathways. So these types of practices embed these thoughts deeply inside of yourself and then again uh, create the narrative which is at an unconscious level for things to manifest. Now we can talk a little bit later about what it is you're manifesting and why certain types of attempts to manifest on some level may be successful, but ultimately are not, at the end of the day, beneficial to you. But, you know, actually, that may be the direction we should take next, because I found this to be so powerful, so beautiful, a quote from Ruth that you shared, very poetic, you know, as well, in many ways, you know, around this theme of what is it that we are wishing for? And then perhaps you can respond to that and build on it. Uh, and she said, you need to understand that what you think you want isn't always what's best for you and others. You need to open your heart to learn what you want before you use this magic. Otherwise, if you don't really know what you want and you get what you think you want, you're going to end up getting what you don't want. Exactly. 
and it's so true. As an example, in modern Western society, there is a narrative that success is manifested through uh, position, power, uh, and wealth. And so people are driven in that direction, thinking that if they accomplish X, accomplish Y, accomplish C, uh, that suddenly they're going to be happy and fulfilled. And the problem is, it's not true. If you look at my own journey, uh, and again, thing here is that when I learned these techniques, uh, I was 12, I was not particularly self-aware, I certainly imbued them, and it certainly allowed for me to accomplish certain uh, really extraordinary things. But the other side of the coin is that each time I accomplish something, as an example, I uh, even going to college and, and then to medical school and then becoming a neurosurgeon and then become a, a very successful entrepreneur, suddenly I've done these things and I don't feel in any way fulfilled. And the problem is that these types of journeys, what we're looking for is affirmation from others, believing that that affirmation will make us feel okay inside. And it doesn't. And as a result, you keep upping the ante. Well, if I then if I just do this, if I do that, then people will accept me. I won't have shame. I won't have insecurities. And sadly, there will never be enough to give you that gift. And what it does is it then makes you understand, at least if you're listening, that this concept of success or happiness is actually not an external journey. It's an internal journey. And that when you understand that, when you're not looking at those external affirmations and you're looking inside yourself and you connect with yourself and understand what it is you want to be or who you want to be, then it makes you realize that the agency to manifest that is internal. And it's interesting, if you look at Stoic philosophy as an example, um, there's a fellow by the name of Epictetus who was a slave. And his comment was that the only thing that is in my power to control is how I respond to things. And that is within my power. And as a result, external events no longer had an effect on who he felt he was or what he could accomplish. Uh, it was superfluous. And in my own journey, uh, I ultimately realized this. And in fact, at the peak of my uh, success at that time, if you will, I had a situation where during the dot-com currents, I lost uh, about $78 million in about six weeks and was about $3 million in the hole. And of course, that was not good. <laughs> And I had to sell everything. And, you know, when you're in that situation, uh, two people become your best friends, uh, your banker and your lawyer. And uh, uh, during that period of time, I really, it's been a long period self-reflecting and finally understood the message that actually Ruth had taught me all along, which was this power within myself and understanding that I could only make myself happy and it wasn't by 
doing all of these things. It was having a sense of self and purpose. And ultimately, the lesson was uh, being of service. And so when I had lost everything, was $3 million in the hole, I looked over my life. And while I was never bad and I was in service by the very nature of being a doctor, I was still not focused in the right place. And so during this period, I had actually made arrangements to give a lot of my money to charity. Now, I had no money left. Uh, and as I was dealing with the uh, lawyers related to all of this stuff, my attorney had pointed out, in fact, apologetically, that the documents I had uh, done to uh, give away every part of my wealth at some point actually had never been completed. The junior attorney had not filed certain things. And he said to me, he said, you know, Jim, you have stock in this company. I'm sure it will ultimately be worth a lot. You do not have to give it away. And after this period of reflection, I actually gave it away. And when that company went public, and you have to remember, I'm $3 million in the hole. When that company went public, that was $30 million. And that $30 million, though, uh, went to a variety of charities that created health clinics, blood banks, uh, programs for the disabled, uh, endowed some professorships at different universities, funded research. And it really gave me the insight of what it means to be of service and how powerful that is uh, for me personally and how it made me feel uh, complete. I was no longer chasing sort of the Western definitions of success. You know, there's this concept of the hungry ghost. And no matter what you give it, you can't satiate its hunger. And this is the nature of these external affirmations of success. No matter what you do, the ghost will never be filled. And you realize that it is only through service to others, caring for others, that the ghost is ultimately uh, satiated. And the sad thing apart was about Western society and capitalism is that, unfortunately, there is a narrative in this country that wealth and position and power are worthy things to chase, and if you just get them, you will be happy. And this, of course, puts many people down the wrong uh, course. And when you finally realize, actually, what the nature of happiness is, and it gets back to the quote you had read, it's actually this internal journey of becoming whole. And when you do that, when you are of service, when you care for others, it also allows you to release the baggage that you've been carrying within yourself that drives uh, many people's behavior. Because if you grow up and you're traumatized, one of the things you carry is a certain degree of shame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can be traumatized in many ways. It's not just, you know, physical abuse uh, or horribly sexual abuse, but you can be verbally abused. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an example, if you look at how a lot of children are raised in affluent environments or even environments where, if you will, the parents place great emphasis on education and they're, if you will, striving uh, to improve the life of the next generation, 
they put within children the notion that their only value is tied up into academic success. And so, you know, if the child comes home with a B or a B minus, they directly tell them that they're not worthy and that they need to work harder. And the sad thing is that when your value is defined by something like that, if you don't get that A or if you don't win that race, then there's nothing. You are nothing. And as a result, once you tell yourself you're nothing, uh, for many children, there's no reason to live. And my son goes to a, a, a high school that's fairly high performing. And they have suicides. Unfortunately, it's decreased, but they had a number of suicides because children fail a test and then they feel that their parents don't love them anymore and they're not worthy. So they've tied their worth into a grave and it's horribly sad. Yeah, well, there is uh, there's a lot to process and all that you just shared, um, Jim. Um, let's maybe let's roll, roll, roll the tape backwards. We're starting from uh, the end of what you were just saying. I've also been reading some statistics about how um, I'm actually having some conversations with some of my you know, uh, former colleagues and, and friends, and um, I, I am seeing more and more this growing angst and, um, in a sense, like outer prosperity fused with inner poverty, you know, a, a struggle, you know, from, from, from within, even though there's affluence on the outside. And oftentimes these hyper successful, uh, you know, parents who have made it, you know, and have made it big, uh, both financially, but also societally and status-wise and professionally and what have you, Silicon Valley, you know, Washington, D.C., New York and everything. And, and the kids just grow up with that pressure that I've got to, I've got to prove that I'm worthy, you know, that, I, that I'm, I'm also part of this, this uh, highly accomplished gang, you know, beyond the money that I have right now. And um, it can be hard, you know, for, for those who um, may not perhaps be born with the same gifts that their parents have. They might be born with other gifts. Maybe they were meant to manifest their potential in other ways and uh, you know it's, it's painful to see how much of that depression and um, alcohol drugs and suicide uh, is part of the phenomenon of that next generation right in highly successful and privileged you know family environments in, in some of these um, parts of the world that are otherwise looked up at by the rest of the world as signs of like immense prosperity right, on the outside I want to just uh, you know kind of alert our listeners that there are some incredible stories in your book. In the interest of time, we will start to move the conversation forward to uh, the next chapter after you had that, um, you know, epic moments with uh, gaining and losing a lot of, you know, wealth and then getting it back and then choosing to give it, you know, as opposed to keep it because you'd reached that stage of awareness and kind of a little bit of a conscious choosing that I'm not going to be defined on the basis of how, how many zeros there are in my bank account. Um, so, so there are a lot of stories there about you manifesting intentionally, you know, certain outcomes in your and your family's life and how you got into college and how you, you know, and your family were able to avoid evic eviction once and what have you. And so I encourage again, the, 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 the listeners to go and, and read your book, you know, into the magic shop to really get some of those stories. You also have a, this quote, which I really like. I just want to offer it up in the context of what we've just been talking about. You said that over the decades I have learned that having faith in the outcome is quite different from being attached to the outcome. And I've learned the hard way that you have to be careful about what it is exactly that you want to manifest. That's obviously all that you've been, you know, much of what you've been talking about in the last few minutes. It's just this, you know, it's, it's not just about manifesting thing, guys. It's about also 
maturing and growing in your awareness of what will make you truly lastingly happy as opposed to like an arms race that you set yourself up for about more and more and more. No, that's exactly right. And, and you know, it's interesting uh, because when you attach yourself to outcomes versus attaching yourself to the journey, if you don't reach the outcome, then you create suffering for yourself. And this whole narrative of I failed or I'm not good enough. And this is the nature in some ways of craving. If I just do this, everything will be perfect again. And so there's a concept which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is equanimity. And it is wonderful to succeed and get accolades for that success. But the reality is that is transitory. And when you're chasing that and you get the success and you feel so good, uh, you feel accepted, you feel accomplished, then you come down from that, people want to get there again for that brief high. Uh, but it's not sustainable. And chasing that and attachment to that, again, as I said, causes suffering. But the other side of it is that in these times when things are not going so well, people want to avoid it, which is not a, a bad thing to do to avoid pain and suffering. But the reality is two things. One is that is transitory as well. You know, I've personally been in some situations where things were not going well. I mean, like really not going well. And I'm sitting there going, God, I'm a failure. You know, this is horrible. Uh, there is no future here. I don't see how I can overcome this. And this is often the narrative we tell ourselves. Uh, but again, it's transitory. And uh, in most cases, you are able to overcome it. But the thing about that is that you learn certain lessons as well. And this is where oftentimes we get our greatest wisdom is from these types of narratives where you've had to overcome obstacles. We've demonstrated your own power within you to be resilient and actually uh, to be able to be you again, not be the narrative you created. And so this idea of equanimity and having this evenness of temperament, I think is very profound. You know, we talked about during the introduction, you indicated that this idea of the brain and the heart, and they're connected through what's called the vagus nerve from the, your brainstem, which goes uh, throughout all of your uh, organs and especially as expressed in the heart. And it's a two-way street. When you're stressed, when you're anxio uh, anxious, it uh, has an effect, especially on your heart. And uh, conversely, uh, certain physiologic activities can also affect your brain. As a side note related to this, I, uh, at the end of my pool at my home, there is a modern art sculpture of a Buddha. And the Buddha is sitting, but the Buddha has no head. And the Buddha is sitting with its hands in front of uh, it and is holding a persimmon. And, and my jacuzzi is at the other end of the pool. And the reason I tell you this story is that I will sit there and reflect on this because so many people are driven by their head and this narrative of which we're talking about of chasing success. So when I look at that Buddha, it reminds me not to get lost in my head, but to live through my heart. The nature of the persimmon, for those of you who may not have eaten persimmons, is it's like in some ways these downward situations where you feel you're suffering and things are not good. 
you know, a persimmon starts hard and bitter, but if you're patient and appreciate the transitory nature of it and what you learn from it, the fruit ultimately gets soft and sweet. This is there for all of us if you're patient. So I think that type of a reminder for me is very helpful. All right, folks, um, I want to take a couple of minutes just to summarize for us the richness of what it is that we have discovered in this conversation with uh, Dr. Dodi. Um, this is one half of the conversation I had with him. We will follow up with the other half. But just for this one, let us pause here to recognize the power of relaxing the mind and the body. The idea that there is all this baggage that we carry, sometimes you know, memories and struggles of the past, etc. And when we are in the moment able to have a certain mindfulness-like practice through which we, through deep breathing, through a certain sense of calmness that we foster from within, are able to relax and release, we get into the space from where our best impulses can arise. He talked about the power of affirmation, the recognition that sometimes for some of us, there is a self-talk that is beating us up, beating us down. And self-compassion offered through the right words and ideas that you offer to yourself to strengthen a feeling of self-worth, strengthen a feeling of self-confidence and comfort in yourself can be really powerful, the power of affirmation. He also spoke about intentionality and visualization, the idea that we can imagine aspirations we have, make them really tangible, write them down as lists, repeatedly affirm them, look at them, visualize them, the, the path towards that you know, possible outcome. And the reason that is a scientific way to pursue success is because in doing so, you create the conditions where you are constantly looking out for those opportunities, for those moments in certain dialogues, et cetera, where you can capitalize on whatever's happening around you to propel you further towards that successful outcome that you are seeking. The power of intentionality and visualization. But here, to me, I come to the final part of my summary, which is perhaps the most profound lesson for me of all, which is that in doing so, in pursuing your material hungers, you might discover, if you do it the right way, that you first have to open your heart, that you first have to have the right hungers, you know, which is what that Lady Ruth you know, taught him in that magic shop, isn't it? That he needs to open himself up to actually having the right hungers and desires. And this notion of having this equanimity of mind, this capacity to take you know, life's blows and triumphs you know, in the same kind of very calm and even temperamental way, right? And by doing so, you create the conditions through which awareness and you know, understanding comes to you as to the true source of your happiness. And the true source of your happiness is something that lies within, not as much without on the outside. And once you discover that, you realize that the things you're really looking for are to do with infusing a great sense of purpose and a great sense of servicefulness to humanity in all you do. And that is when you arrive at your fullest potential. I also found it really powerful that in describing this journey to us, he takes us back to a moment where he was 12 years old. The idea that even at these very tender ages, when you and I and we are raising the next generation, that if we arrive in the right way and temper and adapt our language you know, and our context just to the needs of that audience, then with very young hearts and minds, we can actually inspire them through these ideas of mind-body relaxation, of affirmation or visualization and discovering the true purpose.